At this time, the children can be dismissed. I heard they would leave anyhow, but I thought I would announce it. Let me invite you, if you would, to pray with me, and we ask God's blessing on His Word, the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Well, Lord, our God, who are we that we can come into your presence? There is none like you. We have sung of your holiness, thrice holy, glorious in all your ways. Yet, O Lord, we confess at times we still want to be God. And Lord, it's rather silly, but we assert our own way. We're thankful, O Lord, that you intervene. You have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus. You have spoken so clearly, so loudly. You have indeed proclaimed forgiveness of sins for those who believe and repent and trust themselves to the work of your Son on the cross. And indeed, O Lord, we are amazed by that. And Lord, as we take each step that you give us in life, we know we cannot understand it all. We pray, O Lord, even this day that you might be the one that helps us to understand your word. As we look at this psalm, Psalm 39, we thank you for the blessing of the expression of the psalms, the emotion, the honesty, the turmoil. And Lord, we would pray today that you might speak to each one of us here. We will give you and your spirit the honor and glory for helping us understand. And so we do ask this in the name of Christ, your Son. Amen. Joe Guidry was a writer and an editor for the Tampa Tribune. And he tells the story of how when presidential candidate John F. Kennedy came to Tampa in 1960, Joe Guidry and some of his family actually uh, rode in the presidential motorcade. Well, they weren't supposed to be there, but after President Kennedy gave his speech at the courthouse in downtown Tampa, they got into the car and his mother made a wrong turn. And all of a sudden, there they were on the main road at the tail end of President, future President Kennedy's motorcade. Crowds were filling the streets. People were cheering and yelling, and yet here were the Guidrys in the motorcade. And Joe Guidry said that his mother, of course, was horrified, looking for any means of escape, but of course all the side streets were covered by the crowd. So she was just terrified in the midst of it. Joe says that he and his sister and his cousin... Their first reaction was to get down on the floorboard and just hide from all of it. But then Joe said they peeked up and there was his Aunt Joe in the front seat just taking it all in stride, waving to the crowd, bringing even more attention to their beat-up old dilapidated 50 Chevy. How do you respond when life takes you by surprise? 
How do you respond when the unexpected comes your way? God brings something into your world, your seemingly predictable and stable world. Everything seems just fine, and now something comes unexpectedly to interrupt it. How do you respond? Do you panic? Looking for the first means of escape? Or do you hide? Denying the painful reality, unable to face it. Or do you, like Aunt Jo, just make the best of it, even though you've got a smile on your face and it's all pretense. You just kind of wave and pretend. It's okay. It's okay. How do you respond when God brings that unexpected trial or event into your life? What is God's will for us in the bumpy times of life? How do we find the guidance to respond and to respond properly when those trials come our way? David writes this psalm, and it demonstrates great perplexity in the midst of a time of trial. We're not sure exactly what's going on. Is he suffering some sort of physical affliction? Is there illness or sickness? Did he write this when he was on the run, wondering if he was going to lose his kingdom, lose his possessions, lose his position as king, his status? Was it written at a time in his life where there was a, a significant sin? We're not sure. But David is asking the question that we ask in the midst of the trial, God, what are you doing? What is your will for my life? And those are the questions that arise whenever God brings that unexpected thing into our lives. As we look at this psalm, we see that David begins by accepting the will of God. We could call this section as well, afflicted and acquiescing, accepting God's will. And he writes, in the context of this trial, I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I'm going to check my character. I'm going to watch my behavior. I'm going to watch my actions. I'm going to watch my morality. In the midst of this trial, I'm going to watch my ways. I'm going to endure it. I'm going to endure this trial patiently. I'm going to keep my tongue from sin and put a muzzle on my mouth. I'm not going to say anything. And it's a vivid picture of muzzle. We can envision it at times on other people's mouths. But David says, I'm going to muzzle my mouth. In the midst of this affliction, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to watch what I do. Why? Because the wicked are watching. The unbelievers are in His presence. And he wants to be very careful how he responds. 
because they are the accusers. They're watching. How's he going to make it? Matter of fact, it appears they are actually saying, you've sinned. That's why you're going through this. We're not absolutely sure that it was because of sin that David is going through this trial. But all of us here know that when we go through trials, we step back and we ask ourselves, what have I done? And he has accusers saying, we're sure you have sinned. That's why you're going through it. And David is taking this and saying, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to hold my tongue. As a matter of fact... I was silent and still. I wouldn't even say anything good. I wouldn't even defend my innocence. I wouldn't even say, look, God is good and this is not a trial from His hand for my... He says, I'm not going to even say anything positive. I'm just going to remain silent. I'm going to accept the will of God. He's resigned to His plight. He's just trying to maintain his composure like Aunt Jo did. I'll just kind of take it in stride. I won't, I won't say anything. The Stoic. Sometimes we think that's the Christian response. Man up. Take it. And... I'm, I'm going to watch my character, my behavior, my words. But then he says, I stayed silent and quiet and stood still in this trial and I, I didn't say anything bad or good, but my anguish simply grew and increased. The word there, anguish, speaks of the pain of disappointment. It's disappointment that is so deep that it affects you both physically and emotionally. This is a deep trial for David. He can hardly handle it. And he says, My anguish just grew. My heart grew hot within me. The injustice of this What's going on? I, I don't have all the answers. What is God doing? He wonders, is it his sin? Is it not? His accusers. It doesn't seem right. And he says it was like a fire burning within me. It got hotter and hotter. And the more I thought about it and meditated, what's going on? The fire burned. And then... I spoke. The fire was kindled. It is as if David is blowing up over this trial. Over what God is doing. He can't figure it out. What's going on? Where are all the answers? And really, sometimes we just don't have answers. His soul blows up into words as he wrestles with accepting God's will. How are you at accepting God's will when it's not your will? It's tough. It's not easy. We grow impatient. We want to make something happen and David's just holding on. What's going on? But he's going to burst. 
on the campus of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. We actually rent space, have leased space uh, for a number of years to uh, Johnny and Friends Ministry. You may be familiar with Johnny and Friends. I hope you uh, are. If you're not, you should Google it. You'll be blessed. Every once in a while, Johnny Erickson Tata, who became a quadriplegic in 1967 as a teenager, diving into a lake and hitting a stump in the lake. Every once in a while, she comes and visits the campus. And I told the last time I saw her, it's been a while, but I, I said, I've got to give you a hug. You're my hero. You're one of my heroes. Well, it didn't start out that way. Quadriplegic. Wondering, what is God doing? She was depressed. She was angry. She wanted instantaneous healing. She, she had all the questions. And, and we would allow her those questions. And she said, finally... She understood. This is God's will. God, I accept it. And if you were to talk to her today, she would tell you, I would, have, I would never choose another path than this calling that God has given me. A ministry around the world, particularly to the disabled, the forgotten ones. Accepting the will of God when it's not my will. It's tough. And David is seething inside. He moves from accepting the will of God to assessing life's priorities in verses 4 through 6. Verse 3 says, Then I spoke. The fire is blown. And he speaks. But it's not simply speaking. It's a prayer. Lord, show me my life's end. The word there, show, in the NIV is actually the word know. Make me know. It's that Hebrew word, yada. It speaks of intimate Acquaintance, face to face. Lord, give me an upfront vision of my life's end. Show me my brevity. Show me how transitory I am. And some think that he, he was actually uh, saying, Lord, end my life. I can't go through this trial. It's, it's too much for me. I want it over now. How, how long is it going to last? Show it to me. I've been deep sea fishing twice in my life. I'm not sure why I went the second time. <laughs> but I guess the first time I did catch a uh, dolphin like this or whatever. And um, so, but I was nauseous. So I went the second time. It was so bad. It was so bad and the ship was so far, the boat was so far out that I knew it was going to be a day-long trip and there was no hope for me. And I looked. I sat on the... I sat and I looked down at the water. That was after about two hours laying down inside. Just awful. And I thought, I could just jump and plunge and it all be over. 
And some wonder if that's what David is saying. Show me my life's end. Just take it. Just take me. I can't go through this. It's too much. I don't know if I can face this reality. But others think that he's saying, show me that really in the midst of this trial, this is just the short part compared to eternity. This life is brief. These accusations from my enemies, this persecution, it seems bad, but it's not that long. The prosperity of the wicked is short compared to eternity. Show me, Lord, the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting life is. You have made my days a mere hand breath. And so he's assessing life, how brief it is. A hand breath to the Israelite was basically four fingers. Show me my life. Twenty. Forty. Sixty. Eighty years. And it's gone. Just a hand breath. How many fingers have you seen? I'm almost pushing it, but I'm almost to the third finger. And he says, The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. A breath. The word there speaks of a vapor. And I'm sure sometimes here in Wilmington it gets cold enough in the winter that you step outside and you breathe and you go, look, I can see my breath. You're seeing your life. There and gone. It's like the little child or the big child like myself that finds a bottle of bubbles and has the little stick on it and you dip it in and you fling it out and you watch a big you see how look at that big or you watch a flurry of small bubbles and you watch them float around and then they pop and they're gone and that's your life man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. The word there for phantom speaks of a semblance of significance. It was a word that would be used of a statue or even a little carved god. You say, there's a statue, but it's not really a person. There's a piece of wood or rock. It's not really a god. Man is a mere phantom. Oh, he is real. But what is real is the eternal, glorious God. We're just blowing through. We're phantom. We go to and fro. We bustle about. The word there speaks of the busyness. 
It actually speaks of agitation. I've got this to do. I've got a hundred things to do. I've got to pull this off my agenda. I've just... That's us. But it's all in vain unless we're living for the glory of God. He heaps up wealth, hoards it, strives for success, but doesn't even know who's going to end up with it. It comes and it goes. Queen Elizabeth, one of the most powerful queens in England, Queen Elizabeth I, on her deathbed, one of those famous deathbed quotes, 1603, all my possessions for a moment of time. And David wrestles with assessing life's priorities. What is most important? Help me to look at my life and see where I'm investing it. What am I doing? Show me my life's end. What are God's priorities? Did you know that probably 90% of God's will for your life each day is right here in the Scriptures? You want to know what are God's priorities? Know this book. God's priorities are first to love Him. Love Him with all of your heart. To love others. Your spouse, your children, your neighbor as yourself, your enemy. To love the church. Christ's body. He gave Himself for it. That's a priority to God. A priority for our lives. To live for God. And here we find so much of His will in this book. And then when we realize that we fail to follow God, it's God's will for us to cling to the Gospel. Cling to the cross. Cling to the finished work of Christ. There we are secure. And then the other 10% of God's will for your life, I can't tell you what that is. I mean, you would wish that I could. I have people come to me, what should I do? I say mostly, look here. But God gives you gifts. He's given you a heritage and a background. He's given you certain desires and loves and opportunities. Training, counsel from people. That's the other 10%. We focus so much on that instead of the 90% that is here that changes our lives. It makes all the other 10% relevant. And David goes from accepting the will of God and wrestling with that to assessing life's priorities. And then he cries out, let me avoid life-altering mistakes. Here we find him hopeful and humbled in verse 7. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in You. If my life is so transitory, so brief, then I need to commit my life to the Eternal One. I hope in You. I look to You. My peace comes from You. You are the everlastingly stable One, the One that I need. Save me from all my transgressions. 
The word there, save, speaks of rescuing, saving from danger. And David is concerned. Has his sin put him in this predicament? We don't know, but we know he's sensitive to his sin. Save me, Lord, from my transgressions. Keep me from making life-altering mistakes. Keep me from stepping out here, stepping out of your will, going my own way, and then crashing. Because that's what sin does to us. And David is shaken. Don't make me the scorn of fools. The fools in the Bible are really the atheists, the ones who don't believe in God. And, and David knows that they will say, Oh, there is no God because look at your life. Look at your failure, your moral failure. There is no God. Lord, save me from my transgressions. The fools will say, what a hypocrite. And they're probably right. I tell my seminary students all the time, I'm not going to be consistent this semester. I'm going to say this and then I say, no, but actually I do that. I'm going to live in this tension, but I'm not always consistent. That's one thing, to be inconsistent. It's another to be a blatant hypocrite stepping out, just going your way, saying I'm a Christian, and just going and doing your own will. We should be scorned for that. But David says, I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you're the one who has done this. He is becoming submissive to the will of God. He doesn't want to step out of God's will. I sat down in the Plaza of the Americas on the campus of the University of Florida. I was a campus minister there with the Reform University Fellowship for about 10 years. I sat down with a young girl, new student, transfer student. She'd come to some of our meetings she made me very curious. She was very outgoing, aggressive, almost flirtatious. And I'm like, "What? where's this girl coming from? And so as I would with students, try to spend time, ask questions, find out who they are. Where are they in their Christian walk? And she sat down and we began to talk. And she said, my father was a missionary, a missionary to England. She said, I grew up as a missionary child until we found out that my father had been double-timing, running around on my mother. He had abused us as children. He left my mother. He absconded funds given to the ministry. And then he left us. And really, I never saw that girl again, but she just poured it all out. And you have to wonder, where did it start? We don't know if he was a Christian or not. I can't answer that question. But where did it? Was it just a little thing? Was it just a few dollars here? Was it just a few errant glances? What was it that moved him to become a decadent missionary? David says, I realize you have brought this trial to me. So I'm silent. I'm not going to say anything. Lord, remove your scourge from me. And this would be the word, the scourge, that would make us wonder if 
it's a discipline process. If David had sinned, we wonder, was there really sin here? As he wrestles with it. But he certainly wants the affliction, the trial, to leave him. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. This believer, this follower, has been staggered by God's uppercut. He's taking it on the chin. What's going on? Can I accept God's will? Lord, let me look at my life and see what, what really, what's first. Isn't that what trials do to us? Okay, okay. Reality check. What is most important? And then we say, Lord, save me from my transgressions. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. God just wears us away when He has to. To gain our attention. To give us perspective. To bring us back. And so David finds himself hopeful in God, but humbled by God. Now he's wrestled. He's been wrestling. This is high energy. He's been burning up. He's blown up. He's cried out in a prayer. He's been humbled. He's been pushed back. He's wrestled with God. And it's almost like that part is over. And it brings us to the last few verses, which I call acknowledging my dependence. It's kind of like the P.S. of the psalm. It's a plea and a plea for pleasantness. It's the epilogue. Here's the story. I've wrestled with God. I don't have all the answers, but God's He's gotten me. So Lord, hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. It's a threefold call to attention from God. A prayer, a cry, weeping. The word there for cry speaks of a cry for help in distress. And if you're a parent, you've heard it. All you need to do is leave that baby in the crib and if something goes wrong, you don't need any kind of monitor you just hear this screeching cry of distress, and that's David. Help me! It's tough. Be not deaf to my weeping. Spurgeon said, When the prayers are done, tears are enough. David's been brought Low. I am an alien. A stranger. Like my fathers who walked through the wilderness. And what was the picture? They need water. They need bread. They, want, they need more. They're absolutely dependent upon God. Here I am, Lord. I know I'm mad, I'm crying out, I'm calling out, I'm wrestling, but I think I understand I'm absolutely dependent upon you. 
You're all I've got. Look away from me. Look away from me that I may rejoice again. He's saying, God, give me a break. Forgive me. Show me grace. Just look away because he felt like that look was just beating him down. Look away. And I'll rejoice. And you've probably seen or experienced this as well. Because there were times when we raised our children, I won't tell you how many times per child, but when we raised our children, we would have to put them into time out. Now we'll say our oldest boy, would. his refrain was, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer? And you know, they scoot around, you sit them in a chair and they kind of scoot around. No, no, you face that corner. You face it. You're being punished. They get to play. You don't. How much longer? Look away. Oh, guess what? Time's up. Liberated. And that's what David is saying. Lord, show me Your grace. Give me a break. Forgive me that I can rejoice again before I depart. Give me a life of joy in Your grace, in Your hope before it's all over. Spurgeon tells the story of a little girl who was born deaf and dumb. In those days, she was sent to an institution to try to raise her, to help her, to educate her. When she was about seven or eight years old, a man, a visitor came to study her situation, to see how she was progressing, to see if she was making adjustments. And he said to her, Why were you born deaf and dumb? And she understood the question and she went and got a little slate and a pencil and she wrote from Scripture in the context of Luke 10.21 where Jesus says, Father, my Father has hidden His ways from the wise and the learned and revealed them to children. But she wrote, Why were you born deaf and dumb? She wrote, Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. The will of God. We wrestle with it. Can we accept it? It makes us ex assess life's priorities. We cry out, Lord, help me to avoid life-altering mistakes. Save me. Snatch me from my sin. It drives us to recognize we're transient. He is forever. We're dependent upon Him. And so we live as people who believe in Christ under the shadow of the cross. And when the trials come, we can't figure it all out. But we can learn about who our God is and what it means to live each day, the days He gives us for Him to His glory and His honor. Let us pray. Father, may we rejoice in Your goodness if we are not going through a trial. May we bless Your name. Thank You for Your kindness 
if we are struggling, may we look at the cross and know that your Son has suffered for us. May we sense the presence of your Spirit. May we look at life and may its trials and struggles cause us to look up to you. Oh Lord, give us your grace. We may live lives of joy no matter what you bring our way. And we may live lives that are based on your good pleasure. And we ask it in Christ's name.